Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Kevin Dibley brings us a series, Gospel Friendships, Finding Joy and Resilience Through Deeply Devoted, Christ-Centered Friendships. One of the greatest gifts of the Christian life is the gift of gospel friendship. We were not made to live this life alone and being faithful to Christ in a world of sin, hardship, and disappointment is challenging to say the least. The Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Philippi to express his great joy in their deep friendship and sacrificial partnership in his life and ministry. He writes them not only to thank them, but also to encourage them to not let their dedication to one another waver. One of the great joys of being a Christian is having other Christians in your corner helping you live for and to love Christ supremely. During this study, we're going to look at Paul's friendship letter to the Philippians and we're going to learn what real gospel friendships look like. Do you want a good gospel friend? Are you willing to be one? Let's worship together. Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to take your Bible to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're in one of the great passages of the Bible today, Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. And I was thinking as Gabe was leaving there, don't you just want to sing all day? Just keep singing. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 actually is a hymn. And uh, verses 5 to 11 is a hymn. And uh, sometimes as a pastor, you just want to go to a song and a hymn of worship and, and uh, one that is exalting Christ. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 is what Paul does. And I try to imagine, since we don't know the tune to the hymn, what it was like for the people to hear Paul quote a rich, Christ-centered, exalting gospel passage and have them hear the music and think the words in their hearts. And so that's what Gabe's been trying to do for us this morning, is to help us to see and to savor Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning, I'm going to put an emphasis in our worship on the Christ who pursues us. So if you just want to linger over that and, uh, and pray over that this morning, think about the pursuing nature of Jesus Christ, what he came to do on our behalf. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2, and I, I want you to pray um, that the, the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit would just thrill your heart with who Christ is, because out of what Christ has done for you and for me flows our love for one another. You understand that? So that when we comprehend the greatness of what Christ has done for us, it strengthens us in our love for one another as the people of God, which is a preeminent concern here in the Apostle Paul's letter. So listen to Paul as he writes to the church at Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, like let me just pause. Do you understand what he's doing here? This this is not a question, <laughs> as if there isn't any encouragement in Christ. He's actually been building on that already, and so he is now saying some rhetorical statements, which you're supposed to say, well, absolutely, amen. So let me ask you this question. Have you had any encouragement in Christ today? Have you had any encouragement in Christ in thinking on the gospel? So he is already ramping up in the reading, for us in the reading of this text, the affirmations of the glory of the gospel for our lives. So just again, listen and ask yourself in the heart, is, are, are these things true? If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And given him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen. Isn't that a great truth? When you read that text, don't you want to know what it sounded like? Because that's got to be one of those great hymns that just built up, you know, like the Hallelujah Chorus, when you get to the end of it and you have goosebumps on your arms as we sing that He shall reign forever and ever. You you hear that. Christ shall reign forever. Every knee shall bow to the glory of God the Father. And so as we're reading this text of Scripture, we are meant to hear it in the context of Paul's urgent concern. And Paul's urgent concern for the Philippian believers is that they would love one another deeply like Christ has loved them. That they would be united and not divided. Um, Because it is easy for us to be divided, isn't it? Don't we live in a culture that's palpably alienated? Don't we live in an age where the air is just full of conflict and division and opinions and hurts and wounds and brokenness? And that's not new, as we see. Even the Philippian church, Paul writes to them, because believers who he has loved dearly and served together in the gospel are not getting along. He's writing in one part at the end in chapter 4 to talk to two of his friends who have been key supporters in the ministry of the gospel to persuade them to be united together. And I've called this series Gospel Friendship, or I said at least in part we're looking at what gospel friendship is. And so I'm going to give you a definition this morning of what a gospel friend looks like, what gospel friendship is, with a view to keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus here. And so listen to this definition of gospel friendship. A gospel friend, a Christian friend, a cross-centered, Christ-centered friend is someone who pursues an ever-deepening spiritual relationship with you for Jesus' sake when others would just drift away. Okay, can I repeat that for you? So... A gospel friend, a Christian friend, is someone who pursues an ever-deepening spiritual relationship with you for Jesus' sake when others would just drift away. Now, one of the things I I titled the sermon this morning, The Ego Has 
landed. <laughs> and we'll see as we're looking to Christ, not the eagle has landed, but the ego, the, that pride has landed, that one of the things that's very clear, that in order to be deeply committed to one another with our brokenness, with our woundedness, with our inadequacies, is that pride must die. And for pride to die, Christ must reign in our hearts. Andrew Murray put, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Right? There's no room for Christ and pride, our pride and Christ being exalted in our hearts. Andrew Palau, Louis Palau's son, wrote, God does the, his best work through us when we're united. And what Paul's arguing here for is the church to come together and be united because in being united together as the people of God, we display to a world that is so divided the power of the gospel. The answer to the unity of the church is not the ability of the church to agree together in our own flesh on our theological convictions intellectually. It's our ability by the gospel by the power of Jesus Christ in the worship of Jesus Christ to be joined out of delight and trust and faith in Jesus Christ it's a miracle it's a miracle that the church is united it is such a contrast in the culture and this is true don't you think this is true during COVID don't you think this is true in America right now that when people who are different and I would say this people who are difficult the truth of a united church is not that we've figured it all out, but we figured who has the worthy place, who has the center place, who sets the pace of our relationships in our hearts. We need to seek unity because what's crucial here is that for us as the people of God, only by coming together as one will people see the power of the resurrected Christ. So Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians and talking about this particular scripture, talks about the need for the Apostle Paul to correct the believers and confront them here. And he says, both in his present circumstances for Paul, trying as they are, and anticipation of his trial, Paul has been rejoicing, right? Hasn't been the characteristic of Paul all the way through chapter 1? He's in prison and he's rejoicing. Since the gospel is being furthered in prison and Christ is about to receive greater glory, now he urges the Philippian Christians to bring that joy to its full completion by advancing the gospel still more. But to do so, he says, they have to get their act together. The murmuring and the bickering has to cease. They must come to a common mind about life together in Christ and they must show the same mind by their mutual love for one another. So I think this is a great word for us this morning as we think about Christ, is that when we are being called to unity, Paul is saying the example and the power for unity or humility is Jesus Christ and how he has loved and sacrificed himself for us. He's calling us to pursue one another. That's what gospel friendship is. As Christ has pursued you, pursue one another. But as he's saying it, we don't pursue each other when it's easy. We pursue each other particularly when it's difficult. 
That when there's hardships and obstacles, we come in and say, when it would be our natural tendency to drift away, we are driven to seek unity and deep reconciliation. So Paul says in verse 1, after he lists all these things that are true, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being have the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Could he repeat it anymore? What kind of unity is the Apostle Paul looking for here? He's looking for unity of mind and love, conviction and compassion, gospel truth and gospel love. He's not talking about just going over our differences and saying we'll just agree to disagree. He's actually saying that when Jesus reigns, we go after one another and work out what's between us with the desire not to be right, but to exalt the only one who is righteous. This morning when we were reading the responsive reading, who can enter God's holy hill? You ever read that psalm? What's the answer to that question? Only the one who's righteous. Doesn't that pretty much put us all in a precarious place? But who is the righteous one? Jesus Christ who has become our righteousness. And he who has stood in our righteous place has done that on our behalf so that we might come unto God. He pursued us. He procured for us a standing so that we can stand in God's presence holy. That's that's not ignoring our sin. He never ignored our sin. But he came in to deal with our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. And Paul holds that up and he says, that's what Christ has done. We are to pursue deep unity, whether there's plenty of cause for division, but because when we do, it asks for an explanation, and this is my explanation. Jesus Christ pursued me in my sin and reconciled me to God with forgiving grace so that I would pursue others with the same love with which he loved me. Are you willing to do that today? Ed Welch says that when we, in his book, Caring for One Another, he says that when you believe that Jesus has pursued you and does pursue you as a loving Savior, it will enable you to pursue one another. He says these words, imagine this, you believe that Jesus pursues you. You are letting go of all the old lies that suggest that he doesn't care about you and that he's forgotten you. Have any of you had those lies in your head? God doesn't love me. He's forgotten about me. Where are you, God? You start to believe the truth of the gospel, that he is a, gospel, a God who pursues his people, purchases them. So he says you start to believe that. Because of Jesus, you no longer now look for the easiest person to talk to when you gather together. Instead, you move towards the quieter ones, the new person, the outliers. Imagine a group of people who move toward one another. Active more than passive, loving more than fearing rejection. They look glorious. They attract the world. This is an example of what Paul says when we put on Christ. It's an evidence of the Spirit of Christ in us. That's what Paul's saying for. Make my joy complete by pursuing one another and being deeply committed to one another, especially when it's difficult in our personalities 
and inner minds to do so. Remember, let me remind you from last week that we saw that unity is crucial to Paul because, as David Platt says, the local church is an outpost of God's kingdom on earth. It's here that we model for a watching world like Philippi was a, 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 an example of Rome in Macedonia. The church is an embassy. That's what Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung say. The church is an embassy in the world where people look at us and they see the life of the kingdom by the way we treat one another. Where do people get an idea of what Christ is like? By you and I. How we relate to one another, especially when there are differences and especially when there are difficulties. So I want to address what I put in my notes here, what, I, what I've called justifiable disconnectedness syndrome. Justifiable disconnected, disconnectedness syndrome. That's my way of saying this. Most of us can get disconnected from one another for reasons that we think are acceptable, justifiable, right? We begin to drift away from one another. I am too busy, right? Or I'm too broken. We, we drift away from one another because we say, I, I don't want to get injured anymore, right? It's not worth it anymore. We begin to think in our minds there's reasons to not be deeply connected with other Christians. What's the problem with that? It's the exact opposite of the gospel. It's the exact opposite of our Savior. We are to live in our lives a, a, a living example by faith of the the gospel which we proclaim. We have a Savior who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Do the people around you believe that that's your Savior? Do your family members believe that that's what... Do church members believe that you serve and worship and delight in a God who pursues us when we are not lovely, likable, amiable to Him? And so... We have a lot of ways that in our hearts and minds pride builds up and we say, I'm not going to do that for them after they've done that to me. I've tried hard enough. I've tried long enough. We have all kinds of excuses saying, well, I gave it my best shot. Aren't you glad that Jesus never said, well, I gave it my best shot and he just put his feet up on an ottoman and turned on the his latest TV show to watch for the rest of the evening. He unrelentingly pursues us. Aren't you thankful for that? Isn't that great news? So we have to together actively pursue deep gospel unity. That's what a friend does. A gospel friend pursues deep relationships with us, especially when it's difficult for the sake and in the power of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask the question, how do we do that this morning from this text? I'll give you three parts of Paul's logic here. Here's the first thing. Paul says, we need to remember the powerful impact of those who pursued us in Christ. And, and that's what he does in verse 1. Just soak in what it was, what it means for us to come to Christ because somebody came after us with the hope of Christ. Do, do you have that in your memory? Can you picture right now when I'm talking to you somebody that came after you because of Jesus Christ? Like Paul did with the Philippian believers. Secondly, we not only can remember the powerful impact of those who pursued us, but we need to kill pride. Because pride and pursuing one another do not coexist. Let friendships kill your pride. 
recognize that pride must die in every believer daily. We have to put to death our pride. We've got to do that. So that's the second thing. Third, we need to pursue each other out of the glorious worship of the way Christ pursued us. Let's just walk through this text together and look at these things. Here's the first thing. I want you to think about in this text of Scripture what Paul says. Can you remember the impact of someone pursuing you with the gospel? And I I really mean it this morning. I'm asking you because Paul, when he's writing, these people can think of Paul and Silas in prison. They can think of Paul praying on the river You know, as they were praying at the beginning, they can imagine Paul being thrust into jail. They they have clear pictures of Paul persisting on bringing the gospel to Philippi. And he says these words, if there is what? Any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now as he says, that list of things, Paul's saying to them this, if, if there's any, he's actually saying, there is, right? And when he says these things, he's not talking, in, in, he's not pulling out his theological, systematic theology and talking about Jesus. He's talking about the practical reality of their relationship together. As he came and preached the gospel, God did a work of bringing them together. There was a love for them. He calls them in chapter 4 his joy and crown. It's a deep relationship that God established. And Paul's talking about his ministry of the gospel, bringing them together. So let me just, when he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, like, is there any encouragement in Christ? Paul actually uses the word paraclesis here in the Greek, which he uses in chapter 4, verse 2, when he talks about the two women who are disagreeing with one another, and he exhorts them. It means a word of exhortation. And Paul's saying, it seems to me, And this is what um, Gerald Hawthorne says. He's actually saying, when I spoke the word of encouragement to you of Christ, did it bless you? He's talking about the actual articulation of the hope of the gospel to them that encouraged them. Was there any encouragement when I spoke the gospel to you? This is how Gerald Hawthorne uh, reinterprets this statement. He says, Paul says, if my words of encouragement have in any way helped you stay true in the faith in the past, then respond accordingly in the future. Isn't that great? If I encouraged you, then would you make my joy complete by encouraging one another? Right? See what he's calling there for? Is there any? This, this would make me absolutely happy in prison when I hear that you're not fighting over things but you're united and you're not just sitting on the sidelines divided but you're determined to go through these difficult places and come into a Christ-exalting unity. That's what he says here. That's what Christian friendship is. It's a determination to go into a deeper relationship through the difficulties for the glory of Christ. He says, if there's any paramuthian, any comfort from love, the word means consolation. Paul says in, to the Corinthian church that he suffered, that he is, they might share in his sufferings with Christ so that they might also share in his comfort in Christ. He says, is there any comfort? Did we comfort one another at all in Christ? Was there any comfort that came to us from the love that God gave to us? Gerald Hawthorne again says, Paul's saying this, If my love has provided you with any consolation in your suffering, as indeed it has, then now please respond to my request. If you've got any comfort from my love, then love one another. 
Comfort one another. Strengthen one another. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, koinonia, Hawthorne writes, if you belong to a community brought into existence by the Holy Spirit and you enjoy any fellowship with one another as a result, then live accordingly. Isn't it true that we as the people of God have something far more binding, joining our hearts together by the power of the Holy Spirit than the whole world? Politics won't bring everybody together. Policies don't bring people together. Commonalities don't. Christ does. The Holy Spirit does. The only reason this motley crew of people hang out together is because God and His grace have made us one. Is it true, he says? Then hear me. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind and the same love, urging them to work together. Any affection, any compassion, any sympathy... John had the privilege on Friday to go out to Fort Snelling and bury his grandma. And then yesterday, over in Mound, to celebrate his grandma. And I just I would ask John, you know, as you're celebrating her faith, her testimony with your family, was there any comfort, any affection? Can you remember your grandma's affection for Christ and her praying over the family? Can you imagine somebody who loves you saying, if, if, if you love Christ because I love you in Christ, if that's true, then make my joy complete. Go together on this. Work on it. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? Is it worth it? That's what he's doing here. He's calling to mind the powerful, unifying ministry and comfort that came as Paul was joined to them in the gospel, and he's pleading with them, do not let any division come between you. Live it out to the glory of of God, resolve to deepen it. And so that's what I'm going to ask you to do today. Would you stop and just for a moment allow yourself to think of the comfort, the encouragement that has come into your life, the blessing that's come into your life because someone came to you and showed you the love and the mercy of Christ and proclaimed Christ with genuine affection. When I was um, in my ninth grade in high school, I had a friend, Dan Coleman, smart guy, ended up doing his PhD, and he's been, he's been an English professor at one of the largest universities in Canada, McMaster University in Hamilton. When I was in grade nine, he was a graduate, high school graduate getting ready for college, and Dan came and sought me. <laughs> I was in a small town, no other believer, guy believers my age, and Dan would come and get me week after week. Let's go. We did the Navigator's Topical Memory System. We would meet together and pray. We'd go to his Aunt June's house and eat peanut butter pie of all things or peanut butter cake I think it was and then we would go out and kick a soccer ball I loved to play soccer and he was he had lived most of his life in Africa so he loved soccer and so all my life all my life I have remembered somebody who pursued me in the name of Jesus and that has changed my life because I look around and I see somebody like me a young 13 14 15 year old boy who's walking around the church and has nobody looking even at him and I think to my heart God you chased me thank God you chased me and Paul says if if I my chasing you in Christ has made any difference then will you chase each other yesterday I get a text from Joe Smith. Mike Meyer and I have both been mentored a bit by Joe, and I get a line from Joe Smith in my email, Kevin, I'm praying for you and Mary Ann. How is your soul? 
regularly checks up on me. I was out golfing later Friday with a group of guys, and I was standing, I don't know, one of the fairways, and I get a text from my sister-in-law, Kathy, and she said, Granddad's died. Then I get immediately another text from Lauren in Honduras, Granddad's died. And so I finished out playing with the guys, and I pulled out Highway 7, and I pulled onto the shoulder, and then I called Norma Jean, who's Granddad's daughter, because Granddad is not our real Granddad. But when I moved to Thunder Bay and Faith got ill right off the bat, we had two little girls, and one of Granddad's favorite stories was taking Lauren at three months old and, uh, and having her by the fireplace in his living room and feeding her a bottle and consoling her. And they got a bond. My kids call him granddad. He called me your number two son because he's got a real son. I wasn't his real son. But when we were moved away from our parents a thousand miles and our kids didn't have any grandparents and we were going through all that we did, they moved into our lives and took over our kids and became our grandparents and watched over us all the way through sacrificially. And all my life I had this, is, I would, you know, I would go in and we'd lovingly call, his real name was Norm, we'd call him Normie and my kids would call him, to this day, call him Granddad. So I get word that here's somebody who poured his life into our family for Jesus' sake. Do you have anybody like that? If you have somebody who has done it because of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus, they would say, would you? You Don't don't parents say that to your kids. Would you now come around Christ and come together in Christ and worship Christ and love Christ? That's a compelling motivation. It's a compelling motivation. If there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Hear Paul that way. Hear them that way. You've got to have it in your heart and mind. Secondly, Paul, when he says that, says, then our pride has to die. Let your gospel friendships. He, we need to commit ourselves to the total eradication of sinful self-centeredness. Now, I want to say this from Paul's teaching here is that one of the things that divides us between one another is we're so wounded thinking about ourselves, but we don't need to think about ourselves if we have an ever-pursuing Savior. And he tells us, don't just think about me, think about Christ. And get it, just, just spend a little time getting your mind and, and let Christ change your pride. But notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, do what? How much? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I just want you to categorize that because those are two chief motivations in my life. Pride and selfish ambition. Me, me, right? What I want to do, who I think I, how I ought to be treated, but he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So what I, what I put down here is you and I need, in order when people wrong us, and wound us, and don't love us, and don't pursue us, our tendency is to do that justifiable disconnectedness. Well, if you're not going to love me, if you're not going to honor me, if you're not going to recognize me, then I'm not going to give you. And you go, whoa, no, whoa, 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 whoa. In fact, I think what Paul's actually teaching here is that the beauty of gospel friendships is that having friendships will help you kill your pride. 
You actually need sinful friends who don't honor you the way you ought, don't treat you. And they're growing and struggling. And you go, isn't that what kids do in your life? Isn't that, the, isn't that the grace of marriage if you're married? You throw a couple of people together and love grows, gospel love, agape love grows. Not my ego, not myself. So this is what he says. Number one, you've got to eliminate wrong motivations. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Jonathan Edwards talks about this where he says that, you know, one of the things that can happen between Christians is that spiritual pride can come up. But he says, listen to this. This is how spiritual pride works. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. But a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. So when you find that your pride is being wounded, your selfish ambition, what I want for myself, begins to flare up, what, what should you be doing? Edwards is saying what you should actually be doing in that situation is you should be stopping and saying, what's going on? What is this situation revealing about my pride? You know, isn't it helpful that somebody doesn't applaud you all the time, doesn't understand your motivations? Right? God uses the brokenness to deepen our, our love of Christ and help us to die to our pride. So this is what Edwards says. He says, the proud person is apt to find fault with other believers that they're low in grace and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are and to be quick to note their deficiencies. Oh, look at them. If they love God, they would love better. They, you know, we, we find the fault in other people. But he says, the humble Christian has so much to do at home. You know what he means? And he sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he's not to be very busy with other people's hearts. Can I ask you this question? Have you been doing that the last little while, saying what's the matter with that person because they haven't been treating you the way you think they ought to have been treating them? What's going on in your heart? Edward says the humble person is apt to esteem others better than himself. So that's the first thing. We've got to eradicate pride. And, and when, when we have these difficult relationships with people, that helps us eradicate pride. And then, the, you know, he says we ought to think highly. So I put in, the, in my notes here, we ought to elevate other people. He says this, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. So where that, where that difficult moment is, that's the very moment where you need to die to yourself and elevate somebody else. David uh, Santisteven Sanst, um, is a worship leader, and he was writing in a, in a blog for worship leaders, and he said, there's a way to kill pride every day. He says, I wish it was as simple as just having a medical procedure. <laughs> or, he says, taking a pill. But he says, this is one of the ways to die to pride. Go make someone else great. Go make someone else great. Consider them more important than yourself. He says, I think this will kill your pride in a number of ways. Number one, it'll take your eyes off yourself. In our quest to being the best, we tend to leave others in the dust. Rather than a relentless obsession with self-improvement, make it your goal to improve someone else. Isn't that a good way to humble yourself? He says, you also bring attention to someone else. Pride is murdered when you share the spotlight with someone else, particularly if they're better than you. It's a little uneasy at, at first. You wonder, will I be forgotten? Will this person take my place? But inwardly, there's nothing better you can do. You improve someone else while slaying the dragon of pride inside. 
He's saying functionally, you ought to consider someone else as more important than you. Elevate them, encourage them. It's action-oriented. You begin, he says, to prioritize the kingdom of God above the kingdom of self. Above the kingdom of self. And finally, he says, Paul says in this verse, look not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. We need to prioritize other people. So this is the way you kill pride. Is you, this, is, this is a number one American difficulty. I'm too busy for people. My schedule is too important to be engaged, at, at, especially for problematic people. And he says, no, consider their interests more important than yours. Jeff Vanderstelt, uh, talking about missional communities, says that we need to be close to people so that people will bring out our brokenness and we can bring the gospel to bear on it. She says, God's means of restoration in your life is others in your life who are committed to bringing your brokenness out into the open. That's, again, I think that's a great thing about family, right? Your children, your wife, your spouse, whoever, they're great at helping you see your need for Jesus. But gospel friends, when that happens, brings the gospel of Jesus to bear on it. The layers with which we've covered ourselves have to be pulled back, and we can't do that kind of work alone. We have to get close. We have to be seen. We have to be known. This is what we call life-on-life discipleship, life that's lived up so close that we're visible and acceptable to one another so others can gently peel back the layers and join us in our restoration. I need you in my life. Not to just affirm me, but to help me see why I need Jesus. And to help me to see that Jesus is enough. And that your unconditional commitment to my sanctification is because of his unconditional commitment to your sanctification. And vice versa. You see what he's saying here? Unity depends on us being willing to take away the super, superficiality, self-protectedness that keeps people from seeing Dibley as a sinner in need of a savior. We need to see each other. We need to savor the Savior and speak to each other. And that leads us to this last section, which is the hymn. And uh, this is worthy of a lot more attention, but we're going to go to communion in a moment, and I want you to think about what Paul's saying here, because Paul now pictures Christ exalted in heaven, coming down to earth to rescue us, and by God being exalted back to heaven. And he's saying in this, Christ pursued you. I'm going to ask you to think about this this morning because when you're hesitating to be involved in other people's relationships because it's painful and it's difficult and it's costly other Christians lives aren't you glad Jesus never even breathed a breath of that that he pursued you that's what this hymn savors Eric uh, Raymond says that when you read this text and sit in the shadow of the cross nothing this text, nothing is beneath us in terms of service. Nothing's beneath. If you see that was nothing was below Jesus, then there's nothing beneath us in serving each other. We have been served by Christ, he says, in, in this glorious way. He laid down his life for us. We need then to walk in humility, which is its core means to follow Jesus. When you see God as you ought, then you will see yourself as you ought. This will certainly help with thinking of yourself less, but please don't stop there. Keep going. Treasure Christ. 
delight in his doing and dying for you. Feast on Christ as you fast from self. That's a great line. So that's what we're doing in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. We look and we feast on Christ while we fast from self. God, let me die to myself so I might love my brothers, that I might be engaged in serving other people where it's difficult, where I don't construct this comfortable Christianity that suits my life so that I have to make no sacrifices, forgive no sins, see no hardships, endure no wrongdoing. God, help me to see what Jesus has done. And so this is what he says in this text of Scripture. Can you see and savor Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but what did he do? He emptied himself. There's a big theological discussion about what kenosis means. But, you know, and, and, and we need to affirm, he did not empty himself of his deity, he was fully God and fully man. But this is what I put down in my notes. He emptied himself of his rights and his delights. His rights and his delights. He had the right to be worshipped. But he humbled himself and took on shame. They cried crucify him. They accused him of as the most loving one son of God who God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The only one worthy to come up on God's holy hill and approach him. They accused him of being a blasphemer. He gave up the right of worship of all the angels and he emptied himself of his rights and he emptied himself of his delights. He delighted to be in the Trinity with the presence of the Father, worshiping him nonstop. That's what he says in John 17. I just want you to be with me where I am so that you might see the glory that I had before the beginning of the world because my Father loved me from beginning. There's an effusive love that Jesus has for his Father. And he said, God said, in order to redeem you and me, you'll have to give this up. And Jesus said, send me. Here I am, send me. This is Isaiah 6 from the other night. Who will go for me? <laughs> and Jesus said, I will go for him, for Dibley. I'll go for him. I'll give up my rights and my delights that he might have my rights and he might know my delights in you. He emptied himself. He humbled himself and became obedient. I love this text. He became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He came and became obedient for disobedient Dibley. Hey, you just look at me and he's not worthy. Don't just wait. I'll make him worthy. He, doesn't obey, he hasn't obeyed the law. Don't worry about it. I'll do his obedience. I'll write his exam. I'll pass the test. I'll stand in his place. I'll do it all perfectly. Day in and day out, Dibley sins. Day in and day out, I won't sin. Day in and day out, I'll stand in his place, I'll do his test, I'll, I'll fulfill his righteousness. And he didn't hesitate. Isn't that glorious? He obeyed for me. He pursued me with radical obedience, even to the point of death. Where? On a cross. Oh, it's not enough that you obey for him because he already has the, the, the stains on his hands, the, the sin in his heart. There is wrath to be paid. There is justice to be satisfied. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll step in. I'll go in. Nail me to the tree. Jesus did this voluntarily. He offered himself up for us. This coming was not 
begrudging submission to a father who was simply wrathful. This was a father who had to be just with our sins and merciful in grace towards undeserving sinners. And Jesus said, I'll do it. Me. Do you have any of that in you? You don't, right? (laughs) But doesn't that just take away the nonsense of us not being willing to forgive and love one another when you begin to contemplate the absolute, glad, willing obedience of Jesus even to the point of death on the cross? Therefore, God did what? He highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. I just want to add this. When God exalted Jesus, what did Jesus say? Now let me use my glorious power as Lord to intercede on behalf of Dibley. He never stopped being my servant king. And right now he's praying for me, pleading with me all the way home. Jesus is on my side. That's what we have to see so that we might not get petty and pitiful in our love towards one another. That's what we must see. There is nothing that, you will, that will move you more to love one another than to meditate for a moment on this kind of love of Christ. There's a scene, a story in the movie Hacksaw Ridge where Desmond Doss is on the island of Okinawa during World War II, and he's a conscientious objector, so he's a medic. And he's, you know, there's a whole story about, the true story about him not being willing to carry a gun and kill another man, so he serves in the military, and there's this battle in Okinawa, island of Okinawa, and uh, night battle, like this 12-hour scene where he is on the island and, and the Americans have been pushed back and they're being, there's just guys strewn all over the hill. And the story is of Desmond Doss in the night without a gun crawling up the hill and taking one American soldier down and lowering him down a cliff and then going back. He ends up that night rescuing 75 American men gets commended gets the medal of honor for it they asked him what were you doing what were you thinking no gun going into the fire of the of the japanese and rescuing rescuing man after man after man he said i just kept praying one prayer lord let me save one more now he's saying that because of the lord saving him it's the heart of christ isn't that what we ought to have towards one another just to say God can we see one more saved can we see one more rescued like you've rescued me can you see Christ coming down I mean that was Desmond saving 75 here's Christ coming from glory send me Christ obeying send me Christ being put on a cross sacrifice me Christ being exalted to the right hand let me intercede for them Let me intercede for them. Let me serve them. Oh, God, would you put away all the division? And when it's dark and difficult, help us to pursue one another with that vision in our eyes. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. 
We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.